0: This is Travel Writers Radio, insightful stories from Australia and the world to inform, entertain, and inspire your wanderlust. Welcome to
1: Travel Writers Radio podcast. I'm Kirsty Bedford, journalist, travel writer, and editor.
0: And I'm Belinda Jackson, author, travel journalist and columnist, and we're your weekly co-hosts. Every week we'll bring you inspirational travel stories from Australia and the world, giving you first-hand perspectives of places you can visit and the cultures that make each destination so rich.
1: But first up, let's jump into what exciting things
0: you have coming up, Val. I'm so excited, I'm off to Turkey for a really amazing women's only expedition with Intrepid Travel. They've got a focus on supporting women's only businesses uh, through the tour, and a lot of those are also now raising money for those affected by February's horrific earthquake. We'll get a sneak peek into women's lives in the Ottoman era in Istanbul's Topkapi Palace, and also take a look at the fabulous Greek ruins of Ephesus on Turkey's western coast. I used to know Istanbul quite well, but I haven't been back to Turkey for years, so it'll be really interesting to see how one of my favourite cities in the whole world is faring right now. But on to our travel tip segment, what have you got for us this week, Kirsty? Thanks, Belle. This week, my tip is about
1: hiring a local guide. The reasons are both economic and about ensuring you get the most out of your travel experience. And a few years ago, we actually took our boys to Vietnam and we asked the hotel guide, uh, the hotel for a guide um, to take us to Marble Mountain. In Dinang. And he took us there and then which is incredible by the way. And then when we left, we actually asked him if there were some other places that he could take us that were a bit less touristy, and also some experiences that would give us a really authentic local experience. And he actually suggested we go on a bike tour around cam Kim Island. So on that tour, which we did, he took us to some people's homes who he personally knew and we were able to have a chat with them about their lives and we met potters and fishermen and women crafting sleeping mats and it was just an experience I will never ever forget.
0: So basically, you cut out the middleman, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And you also can buy directly from those locals you meet. So that's what we did when we were in Vietnam. So it's also just an amazing way to show our boys and show your, you know, your children if you if you're taking them along, the local way of life and immerse in a in a new culture. So how how do you find them? Um, I would say start by asking the hotel, and then Google is obviously always your friend. But of course, do your homework.
0: Thanks, Kirst. That's a great tip. The crown jewel of Kangaroo Island is Southern Ocean Lodge, which was burnt down in bushfires three years ago. Kirsty Bedford talks to Hayley Bailey, the co-owner of Bailey Lodges, about how they've rebuilt one of Australia's most revered luxury lodges, literally from the ground up, and what you can expect when it reopens on the 6th of December. Welcome to the show, Hayley.
1: Oh, hello. Great to be here. Thanks so much for
0: joining us. So let's start
1: by just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to launch Bailey Lodges.
2: Well, my husband and I started the business almost 20 years ago with our first property on Lord Howe Island, Capella Lodge, and we purchased that. And then we set about to create a portfolio of high-end luxury lodges with Longitude 131 coming into the portfolio after we built Southern Ocean Lodge on Kangaroo Island. So we had the the three properties in the business that we actually then went on to sell uh, in 2019, but we've retained um, Capella Lodge on Lord Howe. Uh, personally but we are still very much involved um, within the business uh, still to this day though as the founders and creative directors.
1: Fantastic properties and I have stayed at Longitude and it was a truly remarkable experience watching um, Uluru from the um, bed, the huge king size bed in my pavilion so it's <laughs> a stunning property but let's focus today a little bit on Southern Ocean Lodge so tell us a little bit about that property and and why that sort of became so popular on Kangaroo Island.
2: So when we started our business, we looked around Australia for a place that already had, it uh, was a destination in its own right, especially for international visitors. Kangaroo Island was one of those places. It had, you know, it's Australia's Galapagos, it's a zoo without fences. There were a lot of international visitors coming, but there wasn't really a lot of uh, accommodation, or especially high-end accommodation. There was a few bed and breakfasts and some house rentals. So we felt that it was a location that, could um be able to you know to have a luxury lodge and and a a fully immersive experiential experience uh we knew that we had a market already going there and so we just sort of had the analogy of build it and and they will will come which is what actually happened which was which is fantastic so
1: the 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 lodge um did really quickly become and was multi-award winning and and at a really iconic property and then tell us a bit about about what happened three years
2: ago Well, it was absolutely devastating. The property had been operational for about 11 years and then the bushfires of that 2020, uh, 2019, 2020 summer uh, came through the island and with devastating consequences and Southern Ocean Lodge was lost to to that fire. Uh, It was unprecedented the the amount of fuel that burnt on the island at that time, sort of a once in a hundred year fire. And even though we did have, what we thought to be some of the best uh, fire fighting water management system, it didn't. It wasn't enough to save the, the lodge, and it was completely obliterated. Except for strangely, the staff village, uh, about ninety percent of that was still standing. So the fire wrapped around where the staff all live, and but had taken out the lodge in its wake. And for all of us, it was devastating. For our staff, uh, especially, we even had uh, four staff that in the fire bunker as the fire went went over them uh, and obviously they were all okay but um, just devastating for them to, to come out of that fire bunker and to see the lodge ablaze and and to know that there was sort of no there was no way of saving it so it was devastating
1: and did, did you did you have much warning did you know or you obviously there was just just no way of knowing the level of destruction that that fire would cause?
2: Absolutely. But yes, we did have complete ample warning and we were able to evacuate all of our guests. We stopped guests from arriving to the property. It was, it was the beginning of January. So it was obviously at a very peak peak time for visitation. So we stopped any guests from arriving the day before and then we evacuated all guests uh, that were still remaining at the property that morning um, and the fire hit later on that afternoon. So we had plenty of, of time, but we probably didn't Realise the full extent. I mean, the the spotter. They tried to have a uh, an aircraft to dump water, but the flames and the heat was just so great they weren't even able to to do that. And the helicopter pilot that was leading the the water bombing plane uh, felt that the flames were 100 metres high, the wall of fire that was coming towards the launch. So there was there was real... I've got goosebumps even just talking about it. Oh, but, gosh, um, I, can,
1: I just can't imagine. And, and was there any uh, question in your mind, uh, you know, once... I mean, obviously, uh, the initial shock and the devastation, but were, were you... Sort of how quickly were you or were you immediately thinking, right, you know, we will of it rebuild...
2: Oh, absolutely. We were uh, just absolutely personally devastated because something that we had created had burnt to the ground, but also because we'd actually sold Southern Ocean Lodge and Bailey Lodges to a private equity group in the US nine months previous. And so we just felt even compelled because we've sold them this asset. It's now burnt to the ground. And so we were completely uh, pushing and really uh, keen to be to for them to definitely rebuild the property and and that we would lead the project and and bring it back, uh, which is what's happening right now and what's incredibly exciting because we are due to reopen Southern Ocean Lodge this December. So it's been been quite a process over the last few years getting it uh, back. Uh, uh, the design development is essentially very, very similar to the original, but obviously there's many aspects that we've tweaked knowing that, you know, we're obviously in this fire-prone area. Obviously, it would probably be another 10 years before any kind of fire of, of any sort of magnitude come back through because of obviously the new growth and it, it takes a long time for the Australian bush to fully recover. But we've got the best uh, water management practice uh, for firefighting. Uh, we've also planted in uh, fire resistant succulent coastal vegetation within a buffer zone uh, around the new lodge so that uh, that would obviously mitigate the fuel load that that we had before so there's been a number of measures that have that have been taken in but but we've just been incredibly lucky that our owners ksl wanted to see the lodge back and and everyone's just been so positive uh to be back on board and and bringing it back uh, to, the, to all of our visitors and guests uh, at the end of this year. And so, and, and while
1: you were rebuilding that, uh, and obviously the, you know, all of the work going into it, you were s- still considering the community. And, and talk to us about the first and fundraiser program.
2: Well, that's been a really uh, lovely project because we've worked with some of the the groups that we've had a connection with, Maggie Beer and she's been a dear friend of the lodges she's come over and done many of our food safari guest experiences and she has an incredible foundation that does a lot of work with with the food uh, that is provided for aged care then we also have the community association on kangaroo island so that helps young people go off and further their education um, on the mainland and then of course the the rural flying doctor which is just so incredibly important for all regional Parts of the country, but especially South Australia. So we we focused and we picked those three organisations, and then we they run it. We ran a great um, auction for uh, those guests that would like to be the first ones to come and stay at the lodge, and for, for the instead of us taking the funds for that, we've given it to the those one of those three charities. There's three different stays, and um, and we raised uh, over forty thousand dollars, which was a great outcome. And so tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, what makes
1: Kangaroo Island such an exceptional place for travellers to come to and uh, for those who who are looking at coming back to Southern Ocean Lodge, what they can sort of do and, and see when they're there.
2: Well, as I mentioned earlier, for our international visitors, it's very much Australia's Galapagos, the zoo without fences, because you can see koalas in the wild and kangaroos in the fields. There's the amazing Australian sea lion and the fur seals down on the beaches, incredible flora and fauna. But also, especially for our Australian visitors, it's the most incredible food and wine experience. We have so many local producers, uh, wineries, spirit houses, and we're able to really showcase the incredible seasonal produce all year round at the, at the property. So I feel we have... A lot for our international guests, also for all of our our local guests, because you can get out and do as much as you like and explore and go hiking and take the mountain bikes, go out with our naturalist guides and, and learn about the natural history. Or you can actually just cocoon yourself at the lodge and enjoy the amazing food and wine experiences, um, and just going off on your own for a meander down the coast or down to the beach. So it, it's a very spectacular location. Next stop is Antarctica where the lodge is positioned. So I feel that it's got it's got a little bit bit of something for everyone. Fantastic.
1: And and lastly sort of tell us what, what, what are some of the future plans for for you now for what, what will happen once this is up and running and, and what are your plans going forward in the travel industry?
2: Well I think for Bailey Lodges, uh, for James and I, the the business has grown. Uh, quite substantially in the last uh, few years with other acquisitions like the Louise and the Barossa Valley and Silky Oaks Lodge up in the Daintree. There's been some international acquisitions, Hooker Lodge in New Zealand. So we'll continue to work on a lot of these uh, redevelopments of these properties and refurbishments because obviously that's one of the, the things that's always required required in, in hospitality and tourism is that you need to have your product at you know the absolute highest standard so that whenever a guest arrives they they feel like oh it only just opened they have that that sense of feeling so we love being part of that creative process and the design and development and so we'll we'll keep uh working in that space but it isn't it is exciting to watch uh, where the business uh, will go in the future
1: Fantastic! And having stayed at uh, one of your properties, and hopefully many more to come, I can I can vouch vouch for that. This certainly feels like yes that you know you're the first one to stay there, and the the service is incredible. So thank you so much for your time today, and um, all the best with Southern Ocean Lodge and its phase two.
2: Fantastic! It was so lovely to talk to you. You're
1: listening to Travel Writers Radio podcast. And now to Paris, where French cheesemonger Valerie Henbess speaks to Belinda Jackson. She gives her recommendations of the best places to buy and eat cheese. Valerie is the owner of Smelly Cheese Company in Adelaide Central Market, but returns to her homeland in France whenever she
0: can. To, you've gone back to your native France, and you're, in, which is where you are at the moment in Paris. So thank you for taking the time to join us from Paris. Um, but you're originally from Normandy, which is famous for its dairy produce. In fact, you even butter your buttered bread in Normandy, don't you? You're so obsessed.
3: It's, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a, it's, it's, it was an obsession. And it's interesting because being born there, I didn't realize that my life was entirely surrounded by, by cheese. It's only when I landed in um, beautiful Australia that I realized, hang on a second, it's not automatically following me. Where is it? <laughs> and um, so I, it was really the beginning of, um, of my career. I wasn't really doing anything uh, linked to cheese before I left France, but um, uh, landing in Australia made me think twice and I just really had to, to do something for my own comfort. And pleasure, and um, I started to go back to Normandy and uh, gathered a few Camembert and a lot, um, lots of other cheeses. And uh, here started a a brand new um, adventure for me.
0: So I have to ask then, when you've gone back to the land of cheese, what was the first thing, the first cheese that you ate when you arrived in Paris? What had you missed that you can't get in Australia?
3: Raw milk Camembert. So that's my obsession. And uh, once you try the raw milk <coughs> version of the Camembert, you know well. Well, it's like you open a, a door of um, amazing flavor and texture. And uh, it's 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 really you put um, Normandy in your mouth, and you can breathe through the Normandy paddocks with the, the apple trees surrounding um, yourself. It's just a. Uh, that's the first thing I do for sure
0: so you can't buy it in australia at all
3: nope no forbidden uh, we don't let some um, raw milk and cheese products unless they are um, semi-hard like the the swiss style cheeses like conté beaufort Abondance, gruyere all those cheeses are very often um, imported in the raw milk form that's their best form and um, that's again that's uh, how you test flavor and terroir which is a beautiful word that you know, the the, um, the taste and the sense of place, and it's uh, easier with raw milk cheeses. To
0: absolutely. So when when you when you now that you're in Paris, where where did you go to find it? Is it absolutely on every corner? Did you go down to your local market and just grab it there? Or there a, yeah. is there a place that you always find yourself gravitating back toward? And when you're well, in Paris.
3: It's interesting. I mean, I'm sure you've been in Paris many times, but you don't have to search very long at all. There is a cheesemonger at every corner, every, you know, it's the same way you find a fresh baguette every 200 meters. You you probably find a cheese every 500 meters, if that. So, um, yeah, it's not very difficult. Having said that, I have my favorite cheesemongers, cheese places, and uh, yes, I will then Uh, direct myself um, more specifically and go and find those people that have such a knack at putting cheese together it looks so good they create different things um it's it's much better than a lolly shop for me
0: (laughs) so so whereabouts do you find yourself gravitating i mean there's some really great uh hubs in paris for food um you know i'm thinking in the second and i mean where's your where's your heartland
3: um, so at the moment, I'm in the first um, arrondissement, so we are really in the in heart, near near the Louvre, and um, interestingly enough, there's a, a brand new little fromagerie called La Fromagerie du Louvre, and it's um, located next to the royal cellars. So those two together, they, so you've got the wine, and that's the the, the place where Louis XV was um, uh, holding all his... Um, wine there was tunnels underneath um the parisian streets that would go straight to the uh, the louvre the palace where the the king was (coughs) and um so the wine has always been there but the cheese just um appeared a couple of years ago and uh, they've created a beautiful little cheese shop it's like it it, and they're so proud it's a bit like uh, it's jewelry it's prime it's a prime, um, a food component. It is, it's presented in uh, in a beautiful way. It's cut in a precise manner. It looks like a, a piece of art everywhere you look, and so. Understandably, when you enter there, you just spend an enormous amount of money because cheese is expensive in France as well as you would know.
0: Oh, really? So it's just the same. This, we have the same expectation, and you know, recently when you uh, when we met a couple of weeks ago at the Good Food and Wine Show in Melbourne, you were talking about the price of cheese and how it is a work. It has so much work in it. There's so much handwork that you that it has to be a uh, you have to accept that there is going to be a price attached to that. So that's interesting that that uh, fr- it's the same in France because I, for some reason we think, you know, that block of cheddar that we've all been eating yeah. for the last <laughs> 20 or 30 years, is it like, wow, that's really expensive, isn't it? But
3: Yeah. I mean, you- having said that, of course, you'll find that uh, it's still expensive, but um, we don't have the, uh, the, the... What kills us in Australia is the cost of freight, of course, which... Um, Post-COVID has um, enormously, right? I mean, the price has increased enormously. So we have a double whammy uh, in Australia, obviously. But I'm am always surprised if you want a good product here and uh, the artisanal products, yeah, they have a price. The, the price that you know all those people uh, you spend more time, you have uh, more care, you go and get it, you you produce it in less quantity. Therefore, you can't sell it as cheap as some that is mass produced so yes you know you have to pay you, you you you're gonna get what you pay for it's absolutely true in France too
0: something rare and beautiful and so exactly. what do you find then when you are in Australia when you your shop which is at the Adelaide markets what what do you find Australians which cheeses do Australians gravitate toward
3: as it's interesting so I the, the Australians would definitely go towards the uh, gooey, creamy type of cheese. And for uh, the Australian, the crémeux d'Argental, I don't know if it rings a bell, uh, but it's, it's really those double creams, um, cow's milk that are really texturally quite decadent and very attractive. Um, so in my shop, absolutely, crémeux d'Argental, hands down, they would, we sell an enormous amount um, of it. Oh it sounds interestingly, delicious. that's um, it, uh, it is. So uh, then followed by the triple cream. So it's even more gooier, creamier. Um, it's like um, it, it's um, very um, yeah enticing, and you only need to grab your bottle of champagne to go with it. So yes, <laughs> or you could put chocolate with it as well, couldn't you? Oh, oh,
0: Oh, ah, yes uh, well
3: done <laughs> absolutely the chocolate with the triple cream especially with honeycomb oh my goodness
0: My you can deliver
3: experience for sure
0: absolutely i mean we at this at this wine and cheese show we had um for readers who have missed out you can still do this at home with your triple cream add it to a uh, um, balance it uh, on top of a a dark chocolate coated piece of genuine honey um good honeycomb and the smell of the honey made with made with real honey as opposed to just sugar the scent Uh, of the honey it just opened up like a flower it was for me it was an absolute revelation
3: i'm i'm I'm, you made my day because i i I, it was for us such a a revelation as well what we created with the with vicky the chocolatier and the, uh, how you elevate an experience to the next level, and it's oh, it's so satisfying, isn't it? You can do so much with cheese and I,
0: chocolate. Oh, it's such an astonishing, a uh, really uh, interesting pairing. And we might put in the episode notes a couple of the the pairings that we made um, with the blue cheese, with the uh, Roquefort, and then the Comte as well, which um, were both paired with really interesting things. And the that's interesting. Yeah. Comte is actually the biggest seller in France. While you're saying that where Australians are, are coming to your shop and buying the triple creams, buying the super gooey, creamy, really decadent. Um, I mean, these are things you have on the weekends, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a treat. It's not what the French would eat every day, is it?
3: No, so uh, definitely in France, we would go um, primarily for the Comté. So uh, the Comté uh, would be number one by far. Um, and um, it's the most eaten cheese uh, by the French, and it still is. It's been for years, and um, I think the the, the it, it's very um, success, it's an incredible attra- attractive cheese. It's it's also coming in through. So many various ways. The cheese that changes with season is the cheese that you can buy one day. If you if you buy it three weeks later, it might be completely different. The cheese that has a story, is alive, and you can follow its its life for I mean all year round. So it's quite um it's it's quite something. Plus, and I mean that, it's a so balance.
0: That's about the I mean when you're talking about the 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 variation of flavor. That's about the uh, what the Cattle, the dairy cattle are eating at the time when the season changes from the fresh exactly. spring grasses to, to later in the season and the lush, lush French, uh, sorry, lush summer pastures changes the texture of the cheese. Can you, can you buy that? Can you see that change in Australia? Do we have enough cheese coming through that you can say yes this is a, something from earlier in the year or do you have to go back to France to find that sort of seasonality?
3: Uh, No, seasonality should um, also affect um, Australian products, but uh, the the difference uh, is not as uh, big in Australia because the animals, they they spend most time outdoors anyway. Um, I think uh, compared to the French animals that would uh, go to uh, a stable condition like um, indoor and be fed... um, uh, hay and um, fermented food. Um, but having said that, the seasons are also something that's real in Australia obviously, so you um, should be able to, to to test it. But interestingly, I don't think the Australians are, are um, uh, connecting enough or, or strongly with what's happening with the cheese at the moment. And uh, I know I do a lot of work with uh, Kim Master from Section 28 and he really follows the cycle of the cows is uh, getting the milk from. He works enormously with the dairy farmer, and I think that's exactly what's going to be more understood, this real collaboration with the dairy farmers, the effect that uh, everything will um, uh, affect the cheese, um, and, and that is something that needs to be... Better understood, better worked with. Um, I think you know the hundreds of years of tradition in France uh, make that it's a completely um, a completely accepted fact. In Australia, I think we need to pay more attention to that and maybe develop this understanding and develop this idea of marketing as well. You know, if you tell your customers, pay attention, did you buy a winter cheese or did you buy a summer cheese? Let's find a difference together. You need to wake up the customers and make them pay more attention on their palate and their test buds and their nose, and it's, their experience is going to be a lot more interesting.
1: That was Belinda Jackson with cheesemonger Valerie Henbest. Visit Adelaide Central Market, where you'll find her cheese shop, Smalley Cheese Company.
0: Fiona Harper is a travel writer and long-distance runner and recently ran in the women's-only trail race the Thelma and Louise Marathon in Utah. Fiona tells Graham Kemlow about her three-day recovery session in the luxurious Ullum glamping retreat near Moab before returning to New Orleans.
4: So, Fiona, where are you right now?
0: Uh,
5: I'm currently sitting in the city of New Orleans.
4: Oh, okay. Can you hear Olo Guthrie's song in the background?
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. There's um, I'm in my hotel at the moment, but down on the street, there's music everywhere, which is, you know, I haven't been to New Orleans before, and I was hoping to be absorbed in music, and that's exactly how it's been. Every every street corner, every bar, every restaurant, there's music. It's fab- fabulous.
4: It does sound fabulous. It's another one of the places on my bucket list, too. So- oh. That's you, great. Yeah, you must
5: get here.
4: Yeah, well, there's so many places in the world to <laughs> see, so little time.
5: I know, anyway, I
4: know. Now, I, I wanted to talk to you about. I heard you ran this. Well, people who regularly listen to our show will know that Fiona is actually a whippet and she has been been seen running at all sorts of different events. Uh, Not really a whippet, but you're a very, very good runner. And uh, you've done Boston, you've done New York. What is the Thelma and Louise Marathon, for goodness sake?
5: Well, it's interestingly So Tom Hanks and I actually have at least one thing in common. And we uh, both run being through. Rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we don't have that in common, sadly, but we have both run through Utah. So um, anyone who was a um, have seen Forrest Gump, you um, oh, might. Is it? Yeah, so when he when he decided after however many days months that he'd been running um, that he was going to stop, that was actually in Utah. So we've run the same ground, Tom Hanks and I. So I was there just recently to run the Thelma and Louise Marathon.
4: So it's the idea that you're trying to get to Mexico... Mexico. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would rather fly, truth be known. Um, was it on, but,
4: now, you're a bit of an off-road specialist with your four-wheel drive legs. What was this particular marathon? Was it on the tar or...?
5: Yeah, no, it's very much off-road. So, um, it's themed on Thelma and Louise because so Thelma and Louise, was a lot of that was filmed in Utah as well, right. um, in the Moab area, which is down in the southeast near the Colorado border. And so, the idea is that the it's a women's only trail running event. So, there's a an ultra marathon, which is fifty k, there's a marathon, a half marathon, and a fifteen k. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's all about women supporting women and you know like having that camaraderie that Thelma and Louise had yeah. uh, through their adventure through the desert.
4: Did't run off a cliff though, did you?
5: <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, no
5: no. Yeah, and no, thankfully we had a, um, a happy
4: ending. So were there um, other Aussie women running, Vienna?
5: No, there wasn't. It was all mostly Americans, a few European women, but predominantly probably 98%, so there was about 400 runners. In the in the four different distances and predominantly American.
4: Oh, invite only, or how how did you get a go?
5: Uh, no, anyone can enter. Um, the reason why I entered was it was it was on the date that I was looking for a run to do before I was going off to a um, a conference in San Antonio in Texas. So right. um, I basically threw a dart at the board and yeah, said, yeah. "Where's where's a run that I can do on this weekend in America?" And the Thelma and Louise marathon came up
4: trumps. So and, and what was it like? running with the sisters was there a bit of elbowing in the ribs a uh, <laughs> in the
5: <position? laughs> no it's very friendly very, um, very laid back actually uh, so it's a trail run so it's through the Moab desert and anyone who has seen the Thelma and Louise or Tom Hanks or the western like the John Wayne western movies would be familiar with the landscape so it's very barren and then there's a, these amazing rock formations that kind of rise out of nowhere so that's the landscape that we're running in so it's um, it's off road, it's dirt down into canyons you know down through riverbeds. What about the I cacti only...
4: uh, Fiona? I lived in Arizona for a while, There is there are cactuses down there that actually throw spots <laughs> Like I
5: well, I didn't actually see any of them. So the landscape, lots of wildflowers actually. So it's just coming into the wildflower season, and the the trees. So no no cacti apart from kind of stunted, yeah. um, very small cacti, but right. a lot of stunted trees that were kind of you know almost fossilised. No, Hard very, to call very them barren, trees. No water. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Although the water has carved the landscape. So, you know, over the years, you know, the canyons and the, um, and the, the chasms have been carved by the water. But at this time of the year, it's very dry and very hot.
4: I was going to ask, I, I imagine it'd be hot and uh, a lack of humidity, which is a bit of an issue for running. Yeah.
5: Um, and the dust, uh, and the elevation probably are all the challenges that, that we faced as well as the, the sun. Although it wasn't, you know, by Australian standards, it wasn't that hot. It was, you know, Probably low thirties. Um, by it's the time
4: fifteen percent humidity, you lose fluids without really Oh,
5: th- yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a very dry, sapping heat. Yeah.
4: And what about any wildlife encounters? Anything with a rattly tail? <laughs>
5: uh, no, they were on my mind those um, those snakes, but uh, didn't see any wildlife at all. Actually. Okay. Um, uh, when
4: well, you obviously hopped over. The yeah. Yeah.
5: There? <laughs> I think that, yeah, they heard us coming and and, and got out of the way. Oh, they
4: like to do that. Yeah. So was, what was sort of best time? What would you expect to do? A normal marathon is, what, three and a bit hours? Uh, for a trail a d- run, is it that much slower? <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah, it's very much slower. Um, and, in fact, I didn't do the marathon. I um I signed up for the 15k because I hadn't done the training um but the the, the first marathon runners came in in just under six hours I think it was okay. yeah to, and that's indicative of how tough the terrain it's was you know it's
4: tough almost yeah yeah
5: yeah okay.
4: have you got another a marathon more traditional marathon to run somewhere this year or have you
5: done um, well, no you've never done enough oh. uh, <laughs> um I haven't got one planned um my travel schedule is quite Hectic for the rest of the year, so it's it's very hard to train for a, a marathon while I'm moving around all the time. So I'm not sure. I might find a, a sneaky little half marathon somewhere.
4: Okay. I know you did well. You? I don't think we've spoken to you <coughs> in New York, have we? Uh,
5: I don't you think we have. Run no,
4: New York, didn't you? Didn't I get a hello oh. to say you had a good time?
5: <laughs> well, I finished New York. That you know, that was my main um, goal, um, and I had a good time. You know, that was the. Um, I had no. intention of running it fast because I wanted to get maximum value for my for my entrance fee in New York so um, well, I did around <laughs> well that's right Why I took running? a lot of photos yeah I high-fived the crowd I had a few drinks um, it was a lot of fun
4: you weren't shooting Instagram things on the way <laughs> <were you?
5: laughs> well I was taking photos and you know writing a story in my head
4: tell me do you run mm-hmm. at a particular cadence oh uh, so yes a minute how, how do you yeah. what do you do yeah
5: and the cadence is key actually to running um, a marathon not so much on a trail run oh, but on a road that. run yeah. um, ideally What's your favorite
4: track, the owner.
5: Well, I I usually don't listen to music. Well, I, not anymore. I I know my cadence, and ideally, it's about 175 to 180 steps per minute um, is how it's kind of. That figured out quick. so it is quick yeah and um and that's the most efficient way to run you use uh-huh. less energy um the shorter faster steps that you use means uh-huh. that you use less energy
4: and how do how do your feet come up uh, <laughs> do you like you end up with black toes or what, what what's oh, the sort of
5: yeah. downside of it? <laughs> uh I, all i can say to that is toenails are so overrated <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, you you don't love a runner for their feet. Mm.
4: What about this? Is there a story round about shoes that uh, do more than just help you along the way? Uh, is there some like the fast swimsuit? Is there some dodgy shoes out there that you can buy?
5: Oh uh, well, allegedly, I don't think they're legal. Um, but you, you know, know. <laughs> uh, I think when it comes to you know the, the age groupers, which which I'm in, so the non elite runners, you know, like yeah. we're we're not in it to. Um, to break a time, we're there to, to finish the run and, you know, not break anything, particularly on a trail run, and come out of it with 10 toenails intact if you can.
4: A major benefit. So <laughs> you don't think sort of high-density foam or springy insoles are going to help you? I
5: don't think any of that helps. When you've been running for four, five or six hours, the gloves are off and it's basically hope for the best.
4: I admire your um, persistence. <laughs> you know. I know you're in the 21-plus age group, so, you know, it's <laughs> Good on you and crossing the finish line with a couple of your sisters.
5: Yeah, it is a, you know, it's a wonderful way to see the world um, and it certainly gives you a a unique perspective of, you know, the places that I've run. Um, It's a, yeah, it's a fabulous way to see somewhere new and to meet, you know, meet new people, Mm. new runners and particularly for Thelma and Louise, you know, because it was all women, the atmosphere was uh, very different to any other run that I've done because it's all women and it was, theme was, you know, supporting women. So, yeah, it was fabulous, a lot of fun. Well, Sometimes, you know, when I'm doing those runs, I think, oh, my God, why don't I just walk? Why do I sign up to, to run a marathon? It would just be so
4: easy to walk. Um, and what did but, you do? Did, did the girls all go out for a drink after the race?
5: Um, no, I actually went to a um, a glamping resort after the run, okay. a beautiful uh, spot called Ullum, which is part of the Under Canvas group. So they had just opened a new glamping resort, which is just south of Moab. Um, so I went down there for three days and just – um,
4: springs and things? What's the benefits? Oh,
5: absolutely. Here? Hot springs, uh, yoga classes, um, beautiful a glamping tent with a wood burning stove, king size bed. Uh it was cool at night, yes. Uh, so uh, a high desert is cool at night. Yeah, so a, a desert kind of climate where it's hot during the day and then a cold, clear night. It, so you um, it. yeah. It's also a, a dark sky area. Oh, that's so that yeah, the nights are, you know, clear and cloudless mostly, so you've got these amazing starscapes in the sky at night. So, you know, going into a or sleeping in a tent with a wood burning stove and then, you know, ducking out onto my veranda during the night to just sit and gaze at the stars was, yeah, that was my rest and recovery and recuperation. Wow, well,
4: that sounds absolutely sensational.
5: Yeah, and it, being in, you know, Utah, the landscape is so otherworldly to, you know, to stay in somewhere where you are, you know, staying out in the desert so you're really in touch with the, with the land and the, and the landscape, yeah, it was quite special.
0: Graham Kemlo spoke to Fiona Harper in New Orleans, where the music and the food completed her marathon recovery.
1: And that brings to a close Travel Writers Radio podcast for this week. For more stories, click to subscribe to our podcast on our website, travelwritersradio.com.
0: I'm Kirsty Bedford. And I'm Belinda Jackson. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Travel Writers Radio podcast. Please subscribe at TravelWritersRadio.com and follow Travel Writers Radio on Twitter and Instagram.